As the Pentagon attempts to change its acquisition process to make it more efficient, the Defense Acquisition University is changing the way it trains future contract officers. For exactly how, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with DAU President Jim Woolsey. It's a very different environment geopolitically, and then it's also different in terms of technology. The technology that we're all living with changes so fast. When, when I began my career change was almost imperceptible in a lot of technologies that were in our everyday lives as well as in in our professional lives. Um, We can see that manifest itself through the entire system. The differences in the geopolitics, the different kind of competitor that China is, and the way our own our world is changing, both inside defense and outside. How is that change driving the way people are trained at DAU? The people, all of us, are, are also living in that very different world where technology is changing very fast. And the people in the acquisition workforce, they need to be able to respond to the changes happening in military technology, military strategy, and things that are happening. So speed is probably the biggest change in and uncertainty. We have to be able to respond quickly to what's happening, both at the strategic level and for all of us in our professional lives, including the workforce that DAU trains. How do you train someone to create a speedier process? I know regulations help do that and changing the way the system works, but how do you train people to do that? The most important thing, change that we've made, is to understand that going faster means empowering people, whether it's empowering them to do their work. We talked about middle-tier acquisition in the sessions today. That's really about empowering program managers to make choices about how to set up their programs, how to design them to go through the process. Well, similarly in training, if we want people to be able to respond quickly to this world that's changing so fast, we have to empower them to do it. So rather than saying, here's all the things you need to learn, We've changed the model to here are some fundamental concepts that all contracting officers need to know. And here are a big suite of tools, uh, learning assets, opportunities to help you go from there. How will you build your career and how will you respond to all the changing technology that's out there? So instead of directed from the top down, it's empowered so that people out there doing the work can get what they need to do that work. What do you see as the difference in the way you're training people now versus the way you trained people, say, nine, ten years ago? There is that empowerment difference. Um, when I began uh, at DAU nine years ago, it was that model of everything is required for everyone, that if you're going to be a contracting officer, you learn all these things, whether you're going to need them right away or not. The model now is that we only teach to everyone the concepts that everyone needs to have, and then let people go from there as they develop their careers and as they respond to the changing world. What that has meant for DAU is that we have a lot more responsibility to create many learning opportunities for the workforce that are out there. It was a relatively constrained environment before. We knew what we had to teach to whom and when. Now we are building learning assets much faster than we used to by insourcing them. We are getting taking advantage of external sources of training, whether it be commercial or other government. And we're doing it in all different modes, from classrooms to quick webinars and videos. So we have a much broader spectrum of opportunities 
And we've had to change the way we work in order to provide all those. As the Defense Department has put an increasing emphasis on working with small business, going directly to the small business and not through the primes, and working with disadvantaged businesses, how has that reflected in the way you prepare the workforce to go out and be contracting officers? That's really a great example of things that we want to make sure that people are able to learn when and at the time they need to learn it. We at one time had a career path for small business, very regimented. Um, you would go through this, do this, do the next thing. And we built it, and frankly, they didn't come. Because when you need to know small business and what you need to know about it depends on how your career path progresses. So now we have a small business credential. So if you're in a job that needs sophisticated and substantial knowledge about small business, you can get this credential that will prepare you for that. So rather than giving it to you in an inch deep early in your training, we give you all you need to know, whether it's a credential or smaller learning assets at the time you need it. So everything to everyone all at once or giving you the amount of training you need at the time you need it. One thing I'm hearing is that there seems to be a communication disconnect between contracting officers and the people that they work with in industry, not so much at the top, but in the mid-level of personnel. How is that something you can address in training? You were at the session earlier today when people talked about that, and I, I note that one of the bullets said, despite all the training, that doesn't get us off the hook. But it tells me that there's a couple of parts to the problem. It isn't just knowledge although that's important, but it's also perspective um, for people to understand what the other side of the table is being incentivized by, what they're experiencing, where they're coming from. We're building more experiences like that into the curriculum. We're building workshops people can do to uh, have those kinds of experiences. We have exchange programs where, that we're building, give government people a chance to actually be in a commercial organization and learn from that. I think it's really gratifying that they did acknowledge that leaders have a good perspective here. You heard Dr. LaPlante talk today a lot about what industry needs, what's going to be motivating for them, what's going to help them make a good business case. He's setting an example that all of us need to think about the different perspectives. As people are, are coming into this field and learning about it, are you seeing a different perspective from what they know or expect in the careers they're going to have as contract officers? I think it's even more general than that. Obviously, people coming into the workforce today have different expectations and different needs than people of my generation did. And there's at least two of those that are pretty clear. One of them is fewer people expect to start their career in a job, do a predetermined path to retirement where everything is known along the way. I started my career as an engineer, and now I'm running a school. So it shows you that things can change. And I think people expect that more. The way we're tailoring the training and giving people a chance to drive their learning as their careers go, I think helps with that. The second is the expectations of, I want it now. Um, people aren't going to be as patient as maybe they were before about signing up for a class months ahead of time or remembering what they learned 10 years ago. They want the knowledge now. I was once playing baseball in the backfield with my father and my son, this was um, some time ago. Things have changed even more since then. But um, my dad was a baseball trivia guy, and he asked me to look up some obscure baseball thing. And so I got on my phone, and I looked it up. I told him the answer. He said, that's amazing. We're out here playing baseball, and you looked it up on your phone. 
And I said, yeah, Dad, technology, it's, it's helping out these days. And my son says, how else would you do it? And that sort of tells you where the generation's perspectives are. So we have to meet those expectations. And it's a fair expectation. We're asking a lot of the workforce, so we need to give them what they need. And that often means quickly. Do the people that you see come to DAU have the technological background they need to address the kind of issues they're going to see in their new jobs? It's hard to do say that with a broad brush. I think the, the attitude that you're anxious to learn and grow, that you're willing to be proactive, that's what we really need more than ever before is people who are active learners, curious, and proactive. They'll go get what they need. James Woolsey, president of Defense Acquisition University, speaking with Federal News Network's Alex Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace 
And hmm. from that point on, I committed myself, you know, to education. It's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So 
here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.